Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust, just like Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I'm aware that as we, as we gather in homes to listen to uh, sermons like this one, uh, that there'll be a range of people and um, some children listening in as well. Just a sort of warning for you parents, um, this sermon is not going to be X-rated, far from it, uh, but the subjects of the passage will be the subjects of the sermon, uh, so you maybe need to be prepared for a conversation. Uh, let the reader understand. Let me pray as we begin. Psalm 119 says this. How can a young person keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your words. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Lord God, you have called us to purity. And we ask, therefore, Father, as we look at this word from you tonight... Would you purify our hearts, that our whole hearts will be committed in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how can we please God? How can we please God? That's what Paul is uh, talking about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're a teacher, I know we've got lots of teachers in Chalmers, 
then you've probably spent some time in the last few weeks attempting to catch up with your students, whether that's on Teams or on Zoom. And when the technology actually works, which this week was a bit of a struggle, you're able to help them. You're able to answer some questions. You're able to fill in the gaps in their understanding. And you're able to encourage them when they're struggling to get it right. And I guess most of those meetings, you'd be wanting to encourage them. Lots of, you're doing really well, keep going, do it more and more. But often at the same time, there'll be one or two things that they really need to work on that you need to address so that the child can really begin to flourish and grow. Things that they haven't quite got the hang of yet, but need to be dealt with if they're going to move forwards. Imagine the church in Thessalonica, a bit like a reception class and Paul as their teacher. It's a new church. It's the church of baby Christians, brand new, only just born again Christians. And Paul is separated from them physically. And he's using the technology of his day to write and work with them still. There's lots to encourage them with. Things have started really well. They're bearing all the hallmarks of authentic Christian faith, even in the face of strong opposition from the society around them. Paul's been focusing in in the first half of his letter to encourage them to carry on standing firm in that society. Now, in these last two chapters, he changes tack slightly and he starts to counsel his students, like any good teacher, on the things that they really need to work on. In chapter 3, verse 10, which we heard last week, he says that he is praying most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Of course, it's normal for new believers to have one or two things, uh, one or two gaps in their understanding, one or two things in their lives which have been normal for them throughout their lives, but now that they've come to Christ don't fit with the way the Bible says that Christian people should live. Paul's praying for them. And the content of his prayer is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Now may God God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He prays for their love for each other. He prays for their holiness. He prays that when Jesus comes back, they will be blameless before God the Father. And that's what the last part of this letter is for Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers and sisters, he begins, from here to the end, Paul will counsel them, filling in some of the holes that they have in their new faith and helping them to live authentic Christian lives so that they may be blameless before God when he returns. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. We taught you the basics and you're doing them. You're living to please God. He's not going to start by hammering them for their failures. 
He starts by encouraging them by how far they've come, how well they're doing. You've started well. But don't stop there. He asks you, he urges you more and more, don't get complacent, don't settle for mediocre, don't coast, don't drift. Press on. Keep dealing with stuff. Keep changing your life in order to please God in every way. And it's not just a suggestion from Paul that we might like to try. It comes from the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ with his full authority. It's what he wants for you. Verse 2. In the rest of our passage this evening, Paul's going to pick up on two main areas of life. Two big areas of lifestyle in which we must grow and learn to please God. This is what they are. In a sanctified sex life and in a diligent work life. Verse 3 to 8. A sanctified sex life. Paul begins with a kind of headline, a punchy headline. This is what it means to please God in a nutshell. This is what he wants for you. Holiness. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And then verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now just to be really clear at this point, Paul is speaking in this letter to people who are already Christians. God does not say, be holy and then I will save you. Try hard to live right and then you can make it into my kingdom. No, that's not what he says. That's worldly religion. That's not the gospel. No, God says, you can't be holy enough for me. And so I will save you by my grace alone as you trust in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Then, having turned to me in faith, I will make you holy. What I want for you now that you are in Christ is for you to be holy in all that you do. And so speaking to Christians, Paul says to them, God's will is that you become sanctified. That's what verse 3 says. To be holy. Holy like God is holy. God is holy in that he's set apart from us in every way, that he's morally pure, he's perfect. And so when Paul tells us that it's God's will that we are sanctified, he's saying that God's great desire for us is that we be set apart from the world, that we be different, distinctive as his people, in regard to our moral purity. He wants us to be like him, to be like his son Jesus. But let's read on. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, there are, of course, many areas in which we need to become holy. 
But the New Testament, time and again, puts sexuality at the top of the list. Now, lots of people think that the Bible has a very negative view of sex. Maybe that's the view that you hold. But that's just not true. The Bible is very positive towards sex. God created sex. We're told that in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. He thinks that it's good. And he's created it and then given it to humanity as a gift to enjoy in the context that he defines. And that context is of marriage between one man and one woman. See, any created thing comes with the instructions of the creator. God clearly states in Genesis 2, and Jesus clearly affirms in the New Testament, that all sexual activity is to be exclusively reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife. Sex is good within marriage between one husband and one wife for their one life together. When used in that context, sex is actually a holy thing. It points to the intimacy and the joy that can be found in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Sex in marriage is something that we're free to enjoy, and in fact it is encouraged by God to celebrate on a regular basis. But the problem is, like many good things that God has given us, we have taken it and we have used it outside of the context that he designed it for. It's a bit like he gave us a Ferrari and we use it to take the rubbish down to the dump. We've ignored his instructions. We've damaged the gift that he gave us. And when we do this, it dishonors him. We're abusing his gift to us, and it damages us and each other. This is what Paul tells us to avoid here in verse 3, sexual immorality. Uh, You may know that in Greek that's the word porneia, from which we get pornography. But porneia is a, is a broad category term. It means any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It includes things like adultery or fornication, sexual activity with someone you're not married to. It includes prostitution and pornography. God wants us to be holy to be set apart for him alone. And so he tells us, stay away from sexual immorality. Now think of who Paul's talking to. For new Christians from a pagan background who still live in that pagan culture, the lure of sexual sin is strong. Paul mentions it in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, those people around them. Sexual permissiveness was the norm in the world of that time. In a multicultural port city like Thessalonica, it's entirely possible that this stuff is going on all around them and in the church, that there may be new believers who use prostitutes, who have mistresses, or who have a pattern of multiple sexual partners. Now, perhaps surprisingly, pornography is common too in the world at this time. Uh, when they dug up the ruins of Pompeii, which you probably studied at school at some point, they probably didn't mention this at school, 
Uh, when they uh, just uh, uncovered it in AD 79, so just a couple of decades after this letter's written, the Victorian archaeologists were astonished and shocked to discover that the city is full of pornographic statues and artwork, both in public places and in private residences. The Roman world, of which Thessalonica is a part, was a highly sexualized society. And many of these new converts had been used to sexual sin in their lives, just normal for them. It's fairly easy, isn't it, to recognize that we are living in a world just like theirs. Pornography is available to anyone, young or old, anyone with a smartphone or a laptop, at any time or in any place. If you have a child at secondary school, sadly the statistics show that it's highly likely that they have seen a pornographic image already. And now in lockdown, we are in front of our private screens all the time. And it's not just that, is it? (laughs) Sending sexual images to each other on phones is commonplace. Sexual activity before marriage is so normal that to hold it back is seen as weird or even considered wrong. It's highly likely that every person who comes a Christian as an adult today in our culture is going to have a similar background to the Thessalonians. But for those of us who've been Christians for many years, we know, don't we, that this issue does not go away. It's not just a new Christian issue. It's an old Christian issue too. And in that, Christian ministers are not exempt This is an us issue, a you issue, a me issue. And Paul speaks to us and he says, that's not for you. That's not for you. I know that's what you've been used to. I know that's the world that you came from. And I know that's the world that you still live in. But that lifestyle is not God's will for you. It doesn't please him. He wants you to be set apart, to be distinct, to be holy in this area. Verse 4. Each one of you needs to know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. It seems that this was a hole in their understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. But notice this too. Sexual immorality is not just an issue for individuals. It's causing problems in the church among the brothers and sisters. Just have a look at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Sexual sin does not just affect you... It affects others around you. Now maybe Paul has in mind here a few different scenarios. Maybe this is happening through prostitution. Married believer wrongs his believing wife by cheating on her. Maybe there's unmarried couples in the church involved in sexual relationships and so they're wronging each other in that way. 
But perhaps we might think too of the husband who stays up late looking at porn on the internet instead of going to bed with his wife. Or the young person whose view of men and women is so tainted by what he sees on his smartphone. And as Paul speaks to them, he says it with gentleness and real love and affection for them. But there are really strong warnings too, aren't there? Second half of verse 6. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. If we're engaging in sexual activity outside the marriage bed, we need to hear the warning. An adulterous affair, use of a prostitute, sexual relationships before marriage, and the use of pornography is not for you, Christian. You've been saved by Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. And you're called to holiness. Is that easy? Well, no. But Christ has commanded it in the strongest of terms. And where he commands, he also equips with the power to obey. There's a hint at this at the end of verse 8. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A sanctified sex life is a high and challenging calling in our culture, but there is power from God, the Holy Spirit, to bring it about in us. He is at work to make us holy. See, Paul isn't battering them here. He's, he's seeking to encourage them to please Jesus more and more. And he's praying for them. Sexual purity may seem to be out of reach, especially if it's been a pattern of sin in our lives. And maybe that feels like that for us. But by his Holy Spirit, who is at work in us, we can be sanctified through and through, holy and blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that we've started to allow the Holy Spirit to work on us in this area of life. Let's do so more and more, for a sanctified sex life pleases God. Now we come to our second area of life. Verse 9 to 12, a diligent work life. Let me read verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Notice the encouragement once again. Paul's again seeking to encourage these believers. They've started well in their Christian faith. He doesn't need to tell them to love each other. They already are. And more than that, not just uh, the people in the local community, but the wider community as well doesn't need instruction. The Holy Spirit has already brought this about in their hearts. And this is just one of the things that God does when people come to faith in Jesus. They start to love the family of God. Paul says, you're doing great at this. And I trust that that is true here in Chalmers as well, that we really do love each other. And again, Paul would urge us, do so more and more. 
But Paul has noticed one thing that he wants to encourage them to change. How particularly can they love each other better? Well, through a change in the attitude of some towards work. Now, just as I was reflecting on this uh, earlier this week, if uh, really, if you had to pick a couple of areas that have been under strain in the last 12 months, sexual purity would probably be one for many people, and our working life would be the other. Verse 11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Just as God created our bodies with sexuality for a given purpose, God has also designed our bodies for work. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were given work to do. It was part of the way he made us. And of course, God works. We're made in his image. To not work is to not fulfill his plans for us. And actually, there are all sorts of studies out there which will show you that not working is bad both for our physical health and for our mental health. God designed us to work and to work hard. It pleases him and it's good for us. But it seems that the Thessalonians have some idle people among them who refuse to work. Now hear this, it's not that these people can't work. There are of course people who would love to work and are simply unable to, whether that's through health or old age or through losing a job or because they simply have other priorities like things like raising children. Paul isn't here talking about that kind of person. I just note that this isn't people who can't work or people who are doing other things. Here it's people who won't work. People who are simply lazy, who prefer to sponge off other kind-hearted people. And perhaps it might be that the love of the Christian community has created this kind of acceptance of this, a kind a kindness that these loafers are exploiting. It seems that because of the time that they have on their hands and lack of other things to do, they're sticking their noses in business that doesn't concern them. They aren't minding their own affairs. Paul thinks this is a disgrace. Christians of all people should be hardworking. They're the ones who know that they're made in God's image, that God created them to work. And it's a problem in the church. It's placed added burden on other Christians who are working and who are having to bail them out. It's causing friction between church members. But here's the big principle. Paul says, be ambitious for ordinary work done well. Ordinary work done well. It's not a spectacular, glittering career. It's not even have a fulfilling job that you love. It's simple, diligent industry. Work with your hands. This pleases God. And it has two great effects. First of all, that you're dependent on no one. It pleases God when his people work hard in ordinary jobs to earn money to provide for themselves and their families and to give to the cause of the gospel and their brothers and sisters in Christ 
who are in genuine need. Pleases God. Dependent on no one. It means not sponging off others, but taking care of yourself and then being able to help others who will need it. That's the first effect. The second effect of quietly getting on with ordinary work is this. That you work that sorry, that you walk properly before outsiders. That is, that you're a good witness to those around you. When the Christian does that, whether they're a carpenter or an office worker or a solicitor, whether they're a waitress or a teacher or a farmer or whatever job you have, when they're living a Christ-like life in the workplace, they will attract people to the gospel of Christ. And what does that actually look like? It looks like a godly attitude in submitting to authority and the way that you gently treat other colleagues or your employees. It looks like a patient response to bad treatment by your boss or by your customer. That marks you out as holy before others. It's your punctuality, your kindness, your willingness to do things that others don't want to do. It's your integrity when you refuse to cut corners. That begins to stand out. It's that you get things done, even in lockdown, when it's so much easier to skive off and have no one notice. These things please God as you are a great witness, a Christ-like witness to others. Be ambitious to lead a quiet, diligent, working life. You will be a blessing to your brothers and sisters and you'll win respect from people in your workplace. A diligent work life pleases God. Well, there we are. What's the Lord saying to us today? He's saying we've started well. We've started to live to please God. Now in the Lord Jesus, do so more and more. It's God's will that you should be sanctified sexually. And he's at work in you by his Holy Spirit to achieve this. And it's God's will that you avoid laziness That's not for you either. Instead, work hard that you might provide for each other in love and that you might be a good witness to a watching world. Paul was praying this for this church, that they will really love each other and be holy in these things. Let's pray for ourselves as we seek the same. Let's pray. Lord God, what we've heard this evening from your word has challenged us. I trust that it's brought us to a point of repentance, that we know that we do not live up to your standards, that we are not holy as we should be. And so, Father, we confess our sins before you. We are sorry and we repent. And Lord God, by your Spirit, would you work in our hearts that we may be pure sexually and that we may work hard for your glory's sake. Work in us, we pray, 
in Jesus' name. Amen.